Well, it's okay. The tomb is still empty. All right. Well, today we start a new six-week sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, of course, there's no way we could do justice to an entire gospel in just six weeks. So instead, we're going to focus on six different passages from this book that all have one thing in common. In each of the passages that we'll read, Jesus says two simple words. Follow me. Follow me. That's it. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word follow? To many of us, the word follow has a negative connotation to it. A follower is someone who can't think for themselves, someone too cowardly to speak their mind, someone destined for mediocrity. That's why we sometimes tell our kids, don't be a follower, be a leader. Other people may hear the word follow and think of both positives and negatives. We can name great leaders who led their followers to victory, honor, and prosperity. But we can also name awful leaders who led their followers into failure, shame, and destruction. So maybe it's not always bad to be a follower. You just have to be sure you're following the right person. And then finally, some of us hear the word follow and think of social media. That's where following someone means you sign up to see their posts, their tweets, and their pictures. And when they get annoying, you can unfollow them in the blink of an eye. But really, that's a very watered-down idea of following somebody, isn't it? There's no real sense of loyalty there, and you have no skin in the game. But we're going to look at the many different ways Jesus uses the phrase, follow me. And we're going to ask why we should follow him. How do we follow him? When should we follow him? Where exactly are we following him to? And if we do follow him, what joys and trials should we expect along the way? And of course, the first question that is worth asking, who exactly does this man think he is, demanding that people like us follow him? So open up to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, I ask that you watch over us as we worship you. You for the people who cleared our parking lot, the people who cleared our sidewalks. Um, Here would be honoring to you and would be encouraging for us uh, that as we leave here, we would be glad we came, uh, even though we certainly could have stayed home. And Father, I pray that as we read your word, I pray that as we Think more about what it means to follow your son, Jesus, that it wouldn't just become something we study. It wouldn't just be something we think about or read about or theorize about in our minds, but something that we actually do. Father, help us to be followers of your son. We love you. We worship you and we honor Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Let's start with that first and most important question. Who exactly is Jesus? Well, to start answering that question, it would be helpful to summarize four important passages or events from the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel, passages that we won't have time to look into in depth in this sermon series. The first passage is Jesus's genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, he shows us that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, 
But he also shows us that Jesus is a descendant of David, the greatest king the Jews had ever known. Event number two is Jesus' birth, which, of course, we just celebrated at Christmas. In chapters one and two of Matthew, we see that Jesus isn't just another entry on the family tree. He's not just another name added to the list. He was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is called Emmanuel, God with us. The third event is Jesus' baptism in chapter 3. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and when he comes up from the water, God says that Jesus is his son, with whom he is well pleased. And then the fourth event is Jesus' temptation. In chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and faces down Satan himself. And Satan tries three separate times to tempt Jesus, to get him to put on the other team's jersey. But each time, Jesus refuses. He overcomes temptation in a way that no human before him and no human after him ever could. So you put it all together. And who does this man think he is, walking around the Sea of Galilee, demanding that people follow him? Is he crazy? Is he just full of himself? Is he a scam artist? Is he just another trendy, charismatic religious teacher or philosopher looking for an audience? No. Matthew tells us from the very get-go of his gospel that Jesus is a king. He's the son of God. He resists sin. He's God in the flesh. And he has come to save his people from their sins. Now, how exactly will he do that? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us quite yet. But he makes it clear from the very beginning of the book that there is something different about this guy and that Jesus is someone worth following. But that brings us to our passage, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John, talking about John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So when John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus takes that as his cue to begin his public ministry. John the Baptist's ministry was around Jerusalem. But Jesus heads north to Galilee, 
a region of both Jews and Gentiles. And specifically, Jesus sets up shop in the city of Capernaum. Now, this move to Capernaum is not just a coincidence. It's not some pragmatic ministry strategy. It's not because the rent increased in Nazareth. This is the fulfillment of God's words from a long time ago. Isaiah had prophesied that when the Messiah came, it wouldn't just be the Jews who would hope in him. Gentiles would hope in him as well. All nations would be blessed by the Messiah. And we see that throughout Jesus' life. But then once Jesus gets settled in, he starts preaching. And his words echo John the Baptist's words perfectly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying, look, salvation is here right now. So drop what you're doing and believe. God's about to do something that we've been anticipating for centuries. So don't miss out. There's a sense of urgency in Jesus' words. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to believe. The kingdom of heaven is knocking on the door right now. But then Jesus sets his sights on four particular men. Simon, later known as Peter, and his brother Andrew were in the fishing business. James and John, also brothers, were in the fishing business too. And all four of these men likely worked under James and John's father, Zebedee. Now, fishing was messy, it was tiring, but it was decent work. You'd likely never get rich as a fisherman, but it was a good way to have a decent, respectable, middle-class life. Now, are fishermen important? Yes, but they're also underappreciated. But overall, for these four fishermen, life could be a lot worse. But that's when Jesus steps in and interrupts all of it. He looks these four men in the eye and tells them, Follow me. Follow me. How rude. How presumptuous. Does Jesus really expect these guys to drop everything then and there and follow him just because he told them to? Well, yeah, he does. Because if Jesus is right, if the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, then there are much more important things for these four men to worry about other than their fishing business. If the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, they've got bigger fish to fry. Pun intended. You're welcome to laugh. (laughs) Hot, Hot mic. And sure enough, these men do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They drop their nets, they leave their boats, and they follow him. Then and there. Now, one thing you should notice is that when Jesus tells these four men to follow him, it's not a request. It's not an invitation that Jesus asks them to think over. It's not an opportunity that he asks them to pray about. This is a command. The Son of God has singled these four out and demanded that they follow him. You know, at that time, lots of religious figures and philosophers had followers. It was common. But the leader didn't seek out the followers. It was the other way around. The followers sought out the leader. 
you would approach them and ask permission to be accepted into their group. But that's not how Jesus works. Here the exact opposite happens. Jesus takes the initiative to call and form his people. Now why in the world would they so quickly abandon everything to follow Jesus? All four of them left their jobs without even giving two weeks notice. James and John left their own father. Well, John's gospel tells us that Peter and Andrew were there when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Luke's gospel tells us that Peter had already seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law. The point is that these four men had already heard the rumors about Jesus. And they even saw some of his miracles firsthand. But whatever may have been running through their minds in that moment when Jesus said, follow me, they don't hesitate to obey. No questions, no checking references, no asking dad's permission. They simply follow him immediately. In that way, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are a wonderful example of discipleship. Now that pretty well sums up the passage that we just read, but I want to draw your attention to something that Jesus said in the passage, a phrase he used other than, follow me. Jesus invites Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be fishers of men. Fishers of men. Now what exactly does that phrase mean? It could be about evangelism. Going out and sharing the good news about Jesus. That's how we typically understand it. It's kind of like when Jesus compares his disciples to workers and the world to a crop. And then Jesus sends them out to gather the harvest. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He's saying that the same way these four were used to holding out a net in the water and collecting fish... They're going to go out in the world, hold out the gospel, and collect believers. Okay, that makes sense. But this phrase, fishers of men, could also mean something else. Fishers of men could also be about judgment. There are Old Testament passages that make that connection. For example, Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, And they shall catch them. And afterward I shall send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill. And out of the clefts of every rock. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. Nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. In Jeremiah this idea of sending out fishers. Is about catching men. Bringing them into God's presence. That way they can be judged. Not exactly comforting is it? In Amos chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Don't use that insult. It's not nice. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into the harmon, declares the Lord. Not exactly a comforting feeling, is it? 
Imagine fish hooks in your mouth pulling you away at the judgment. That's what God is talking about here. So which one is it? Is this phrase, fishers of men, about evangelism, or is it about judgment? Well, maybe it's about both. Because when you really think about it, evangelism and judgment are two sides of the same coin. If you hold out Christ to someone, if you evangelize, if you share the good news, and that person refuses, that person is inviting God's judgment upon themselves. When you share the gospel with someone, you are putting them in the position of having to make a choice. And Christians believe that rejecting Jesus is the wrong choice. And that that choice brings about judgment. But practically speaking, back to this phrase of fishers of men. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus today to be fishers of men? Well, a few points to consider. Number one, if you want to be a good fisher of men, spend time with Jesus, the ultimate fisher of men. Because the more time you spend with him, the more you will love him. Get hooked by him the way these four men did when Jesus looked at them and said, follow me. Spend time with the fishermen who reached down and pulled you up out of the depths of sin and judgment. Read about him. Speak with him in prayer. Worship him. Rejoice in him. He left the Father's presence in heaven and came down into our fallen world to die on a cross for our sins and rise from the grave. Also that rebels like you and rebels like me could one day be in the Father's presence ourselves. So dwell on his power, his beauty, his grace, his glory. Because the more time you spend in Jesus' presence, the more desire you'll have to share him with others. Another point about being a fisher of men is that fishers of men operate with a sense of urgency. In that passage we read, Matthew 4, 18 through 22, the word immediately was used two times. Two times in five verses. And even though Jesus first said the kingdom of heaven is at hand almost 2,000 years ago, we still believe it today. We Christians believe that the kingdom of heaven is still at hand. Because even though we don't know when it will happen, we believe that Christ will return. And that's why we have a sense of urgency. That's why we're so committed to holding out the gospel like a fisherman holding out a net in order that people may believe and be saved. Now, doing evangelism, sharing the gospel with a sense of urgency, doesn't mean that we think that other people's salvation is all up to us. The truth is that God knows who belongs to him. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and minds of sinners. Not you and not me. But our marching orders still stand. We have the privilege of being used by God, preaching the gospel in order to accomplish his purposes. And we do this with a sense of urgency because we don't know how short life may be. And again, we don't know when Christ will return. Another point is that being a fisher of men requires us to go out 
into the water. The fish won't just come to us. We're called to go out and hold out the net. We leave the safe and familiar shores of our homes, our church, and our cliques. We cast out into the choppy and unpredictable waters of our world and share the gospel with all. We announce to people who Jesus is, the Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. This good news isn't something that we keep to ourselves. Jesus calls us to go out and proclaim it. Now, of course, the thought of putting ourselves out there like that may seem intimidating. We don't know what people will think. We don't know how people will respond. It is much safer and much easier to just keep our beliefs to ourselves, keep the gospel to ourselves. But remember what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Ironically, also in Galilee, he says that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. So as we go out and make disciples of all nations, we know that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And then lastly, being a fisher of men, just like being a fisher of, well, fish, requires patience. There will be times when we hold out the net and nothing happens. We share Christ with someone and nothing changes. Don't give up. Keep going out and keep preaching, even when the fish don't bite. We can't manufacture followers of Jesus by the power of our intellect, our impressive rhetoric, or just our winsome sense of charm. We can't force people to believe, and we shouldn't try to manipulate people into following Jesus just so we can brag about how many fish we've caught. But we should be patient. We should be persistent, and we should be faithful. Because we trust that there are people out there who will hear the gospel and will believe. God knows who those people are. And someday, you might be the person that God uses to call them, even if it takes a little bit longer than you hoped. Now, as we close, let's look at the end of the passage. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So once Jesus has these initial four followers, his ministry really kicks off. He takes the show on the road, teaching, preaching, healing the sick, exercising demons. Crowds start to form and they begin to follow him as well. Jews, Gentiles, everyone wants to follow Jesus. But as we'll see in the weeks ahead, many of the people in these crowds will only follow Jesus so far. But clearly, he's not just another charismatic figure. Something else a lot bigger is going on. He really is who Matthew said he is earlier in the book. The king from David's line, 
fully God and fully man, the one born to overcome sin and Satan in ways that we can't. And apparently he really is worth following. And apparently the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. Now earlier we talked about the word follow. It sometimes has that negative connotation to it. We think being a leader sounds a lot better. We sometimes think of the countless examples of people blindly and naively following a bad leader and ultimately getting hurt for it. Sometimes our idea of following someone is as trivial and superficial as sharing their Facebook posts, reading their tweets, and liking their pictures. But I think we're going to see in the coming weeks that we Christians believe that when Jesus tells us to follow him, that means we are to love him, serve him, obey him, and worship him no matter where he leads us. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, perhaps he's calling you to follow him right now. Maybe God has already put lots of fishers of men in your life who have held the gospel out to you, and yet you've run away because of pride, because of fear, because of uncertainty. Well, I pray that you would believe in him this morning and that you would follow him immediately because he will never lead you astray. And if you already know Jesus, be reminded that he's called you to do more than just believe in him. He's called you to drop everything and follow him. He's called you to a mission. He's called you to be a fisher of men. Perhaps that means focusing a little bit less on your priorities, your nets, and picking up his net. Perhaps it means getting off the shore and going out into the water, even if you're a little bit scared. Pick up the gospel and hold it out into the world. Because God knows that this world needs it. And the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And we believe that now is the time to follow Jesus. And now is the time to do it immediately. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for Jesus' words. Two simple words. Follow me. I pray that you would be with us on this endeavor, this adventure to follow your son, Jesus. We'd be lying if we said it was easy. Of course, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, empowering us and enabling us. We have other followers of Jesus around us to encourage us and pray for us and help us and challenge us. But even with all those things, following your son isn't easy. So I pray that those in this room who already believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would help us to follow him more closely. And Father, I pray for those people in this room who haven't yet followed Jesus. I pray that this morning might be the time that your word and your spirit would convict them and draw them to repentance and that we as a church can welcome those people into your family. And Father, again, I ask that you help us all to be fishers of men, to lay aside our fears, lay aside our uncertainties, lay aside some 
selfish desires, some selfish priorities that might get in the way of us sharing your gospel. Father, help us to hold out the net into a world that so desperately needs your Son. And Father, if we do catch those people, if we do preach the gospel and someone comes to believe it, I pray that we would give you all the glory for it, because you deserve all the glory for it. So Father, we honor you, we worship you, thank you that you have reached down into the depths, and that you have rescued and saved us. May we announce that to other people as well. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.